Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Lots going on in Washington and around the world today. We have some big stories and some outstanding guests like we always do. Uh, But before we get to those stories... Well, let me tell you something we don't always have, John. Just as I was walking in here, I watched that video. Did you see the video? No. CNN had it from another local news station of a a man who'd never flown a plane. Well, who was not Uh, the the passenger. He was a passenger in the plane. this morning. It seems like he must have spent some time in small planes to have this level of familiarity. Um, But yeah. Being yeah, walked the through just landing the plane out or something or something. They were saying the pilot's incoherent, whatever. We don't know yet what happened to the pilot, but you can listen to the exchange. That is a remarkably calm passenger going. Uh, I'll yeah, say. I don't know what my position is. Maybe you can uh, help me with that. <laughs> you guys have any advice on how to get my instrument panel to turn on? <laughs> uh, that I know has all the information I need. Like, the hell? This is can you just gently move the instruments forward? I mean, I I would like to think I would be that calm, but. I, was, I almost it, cried. It was a, it looked to me as I was walking in like a Cessna 182. It was a yeah. smallish plane. Yeah. Just a teeny little plane. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. St- I mean, still. To him. <laughs> like, Pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah. That was wild. I just had to get that in there. Well, the com- the Commerce Department this morning announced that inflation fell last month to 8.3%. Woo! Uh, yeah. Woo! Yeah. Pop the champagne. That's all the way down from 8.5%. Amazing. Despite the fact that the drop was well within the margin of error oh. and will likely be revised next month, oh, as no. they are every month, the government announced that it believed inflation has peaked and will now begin to fall more significantly. I guess we'll see. <laughs> I mean, I don't I'm not an economist. Maybe maybe a drop in the increase, maybe a drop of 02 percent really is a huge deal. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It was the first time it went down at all yes. by any amount in eight months. Yes. So I think maybe we don't need to celebrate too soon. Maybe we are. Maybe it will start to drop off. There is something that is getting a little bit lost in some of the reporting on all this. I mean, you can find it. The New York Times highlight, highlighted this. The Wall Street Journal mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Um, the core price measure, which measures prices other than food and energy costs, because they are particularly volatile and particularly vulnerable. And so, you know, they don't necessarily accurately capture a, a larger and more stable trend. That still went up and it went up faster than it did in March. In March, it increased by 0.3%. In April, it increased by 0.6%. And for both of those, um, for, for that measure, for, for both of those months, uh, what, the average in the two years before the pandemic was 0.2%. That was the average increase, right? So both of those months marked an increase. Um, that would seem to maybe contradict this idea that we are at the top of the peak, although I don't want to naysay so much. I sound like I want inflation to continue because I don't. But the other thing is, you know, uh, the overall inflation was probably helped by gas prices falling last month. Although, again, this mm-hmm. month they have hit new highs. Mm-hmm. They hit a record yesterday. Yeah. You know, I was watching the... um the sequel to Bosch yesterday on Amazon TV. I love the show Bosch. It went for six seasons. It's kind of a noir detective thing in Los Angeles. And uh, they've just come out with uh, with the sequel. Okay, so in one scene I saw yesterday, he gets out of his car at this uh, gas station. And gas, and the, again, this is in Los Angeles, gas is, oh my God, $4.29 a gallon. 
well, you know what? I can't even find 429 a gallon gas now. And in California, they're easily a dollar, two dollars a gallon more than what they are here. So which is also by global standards, remarkably low. Yeah. Artificially low. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Because in in Western Europe, I mean, they're approaching 10 bucks a gallon in some in some countries. Yeah, but you can afford it. You know, you can afford it because your other costs are offset either because you don't have to pay healthcare premiums every right. month or yeah, you get a higher right. salary. Yes. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, you know, it, of course, while while people feel food and energy crisis really uh, prices really acutely, the core inflation measure is actually an important one in assessing how your inflationary tools are working or your counterinflationary tools. This is at least according to what I was reading this morning. And other important costs are also still increasing, like rent, yes. which went up another 0.6%, right? And here is, this is what I thought was the most depressing line from the New York Times story on the economy this morning. Economists do expect price increases to slow somewhat this year. Not good <laughs> I mean, enough, that's people. Not even, not even they're going to go back down. The increase no. is going too slow. Yeah. I will say I got a notice yesterday from my bank that my savings account rate is going up. I did too. From 0.5 to 0.6. Yep. We're in the money. That's exactly what mine is. I th- I do think. I, I mean, honestly, that communicates a lot to me that that borrowing interest rates can be so high right now while savings interest rates are so, so low. Like it really does sort of force you into the only way to come to any kind of financial stability yes. is to give your money to a bank sort of through the vehicle of a house. Yeah. And that's the only way right. you can do it. Otherwise, you, you can't possibly hope to to say, you know, to earn any interest on your savings. No, It's pretty no. sad. You lose money that way. Yeah. And again, you know, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I have any capacity to offer, a, you know, an alternative set of tools to curb inflation. But, uh, you know, we see prices continue to go up and we see this administration and its representatives walk out here week after week and ask corporations not to price gouge. Yes. And it just. Feels it feels like nonsense. It feels like theater. We've had presidents in the past go after corporations for price gouging. We saw it in the early days of the Second World War. Uh, Harry Truman did it to combat inflation. Uh, who else? Uh, Richard Nixon did it. John Kennedy did it when when he uh, clamped down on the steel manufacturers. Yeah. So asking politely isn't going to get it. Isn't going to get us anywhere. No, it's Joe ridiculous. Biden's got to got to show leadership on this issue. Did you also see? I mean, we at least were not treated to the spectacle they had in the UK of Prince Charles, who opened Parliament for the first time for the yesterday first time. and sat on the sat on a throne, a golden throne with a chest full of medals and said, we're going to work really hard to uh, address the cost, the cost of living for Britain. How like, embarrassing. I I know, right? It's weird. Oh, it is. It is weird. Every, uh, that makes me a little bit uh, warm and fuzzy for the American Revolution. Yeah, <laughs> Every time I seriously. See that. So silly. Seriously. Also, I mean, Bitcoin was generating big headlines today because early in the day, around 9 a.m., it dipped below 30,000. Then the last I saw it was back up above 30,000 and everyone went, oh, OK, I guess everything's fine. And now God knows. It's, it's actually good. not fine because it had been what? 72,000. Yeah, I mean, six it, it's, months lost, ago. it's lost half its value. Yeah. But don't worry. <laughs> don't worry. It's, right. a, it's a real it's it's a real safe thing that you can right. you know, put it, right. you know, it, it, pension funds into Bitcoin. That's fine. Oh, sure. And the good thing is you can actually hold Bitcoin in your hand, right? Yeah, flip yeah. a Bitcoin. Oh, heads or tails. Right. <laughs> heads or tails, John. Exactly. I choose imaginary because that's what this is. Major media outlets this morning, and this is troubling to me, 
announced that because of supply chain disruptions, the country is running out of baby formula, right? We actually have 40% less formula than we need. Um, Major retailers like Walmart and Target are now limiting the amount of baby formula that a person can buy. And I was telling you before we went on the air that about six months ago, the Washington Post had an article saying that there are actually several hundred children or young adults around the country who have such severe food allergies that they have to be fed baby formula like through tubes that, boggles my mind. that are installed in their stomachs. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about like 14, 15, 16 year old kids and there's no baby formula. Yeah. That. So we've got to figure out the supply chain situation. Yeah. I mean, two and a half years is long enough to have figured something out. And maybe if you're planning on uh, creating a scenario where you're going to have lots more babies mm. in this country mm-hmm. because you're going to outlaw abortion, maybe right. create, create a point. nation that's going to be welcoming to them and to their parents. Good I mean, point. Think, yeah. Yes. A secret audio recording released this morning reveals that Senator Lindsey Graham, mm-hmm. the Republican from South Carolina, was critical of former President Donald Trump in what? the immediate aftermath mm-hmm. of the January 6th riots, mm-hmm. if you can believe it. Yes. Graham told, yeah, I, I believe it too. Absolutely, I believe it, yeah. Graham told two New York Times journalists that President Biden, quote, is the best person to have, unquote, as president. And that Trump, quote, plays the TV game and went too far, unquote. I agree with the latter. On January 6th. I think we could do better than Joe Biden. I agree. Absolutely. I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, The recording is not a surprise. Graham has always tailored his comments to his audience. He flips on every issue more than anybody else is capable of flipping. Yeah. You know, he's just all over the place. I really don't respect Here's the thing he actually said about Joe Biden. He said he'll maybe be the best person to have. I mean, how mad can you get at Joe Biden? I can get pretty mad. I just, I mean, I disagree. I disagree across the board with that statement. That is, that is, yeah. You can get mad at Joe Biden. I have to agree with you. Lots of people are. But yeah, I mean, it's fine. Fun. There were two primary elections yesterday. Mm -hmm. One was in Nebraska. The other was in West Virginia. And there were two races that everybody was watching. One was for the the Republican nomination for Nebraska governor. The other was this congressional uh, seat in West Virginia. There were two incumbent congressmen, two incumbent Republican congressmen running against each other because nobody wants to live in West Virginia. So they lost a congressional district. I would like to live in West Virginia. I know. But you and I would like to have cabins in West Virginia. I'd live there. Would you really? Yeah, for sure. I'm not sure I could handle the politics. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, uh, they had these elections um, and the results were a mixed bag for Donald Trump. Mm. Um, The University of Nebraska's regent, a guy by the name of Jim Pillen, defeated a Trump endorsed candidate by the name of Charles Herbster. Yes, but that's because Trump accidentally he made a mistake and endorsed a cartoon character. The Chuck Herbster is obviously like a, a, a bull weevil logo on a Monsanto can or something. Not a real person. No one's real. If your last name is Herbster, just change it. Right. Well, I'll tell you what else he ought to change is his behavior because Chuck Herbster um, was credibly accused of groping eight different women. Hansy Herbster. Uh-huh. Wow. Hansy Herbster. And and two of the women agreed to be named and give interviews. The other women gave uh, testimony under seal. But the guy's a serial groper. 
And still, he came within a whisker of winning the Republican nomination for governor of Nebraska. I mean, Hansi is sort of a joke. Groping's disgusting. Groping's Groping's disgusting. Groping's gross. And if you had, it hasn't happened to me very often, but it has happened to me in my life. And if you had asked me in the 60 seconds after it happened what I wanted to have to happen to that person, I would have said chop off his hands. Chop both of his hands off. It's it's such a violation. It's It's nasty. I was on a bus once in Athens and there was a very attractive young woman uh, standing there holding onto the strap and a guy old enough to be her grandfather uh, touched her rear end. Mm -hmm. And another young guy got up and just pummeled this old man right there on the bus in yes. front of everybody. People were applauding and everything. <laughs> good. And then a cousin of mine told me, oh yeah, it's always the creepy old men that do it. Young I've, guys never do stuff like it that. It happened to me once. Yeah, it was definitely a creepy old man. Awful. Yeah. Absolutely awful. Yeah. So in West Virginia, okay, so finishing up Herbster Nebraska, taken Herbster down. lost. Yeah, so good. Trump was out on that one. Mm-hmm. But in West Virginia, the Trump endorsed candidate, Alexander Mooney, handily defeated uh, the other guy, David McKinley, again, both Republicans, redistricting forced the two to run against each other. McKinley, the loser, was one of the very few Republicans who voted yes on Joe Biden's infrastructure bill. So you you remember we talked about uh, West Virginia several weeks ago. West Virginia used to be the most solidly and reliably Democratic state in America. Mm-hmm. Right. No matter how conservative they may have been, they were Democrats through and through going back to the New Deal. Is this because they were doing industrialized yes. uh, jobs in manufacturing and they That's were exactly protected it. by unions? Yeah, makes sense. Exactly. it. And when you completely leave behind a population and tell them uh, mm. learn to code and yeah. a union bust and you're all of your sort of party executives are, are revolving in and out of, uh, of union busting. Yeah. Uh, consultancies. Lesson to be learned here. Yeah. There's a PhD dissertation in that. Yeah, seriously. I mean, this is the thing. Like, this is not the problem of the people of West Virginia. You know no. what I mean? This is a result of. I mean, look, it takes all kinds, right? I'm sure there are there are jerks there, and there are wonderful people there, and there are like wonderful things happening and terrible things happening. But like West Virginia going conservatives is is a, a loss orchestrated by the Democratic Party. Absolutely, I don't think they didn't yes. all turn around and go, ah, we're racist and we hate you now. You're absolutely right. Yeah. The, the, the Democrats threw away West Virginia. Yeah. You know, West Virginia went for George W. Bush in 2000 and never looked back. They've never voted Democratic again yeah. since 2000. And in the uh, 2020 election, they gave Donald Trump his biggest margin of victory of any state in America. He won bigger in West Virginia than he won in Idaho, in Wyoming, or Utah, or any of these ruby red states. And I wonder how much of that was also is, uh, you know, again, Donald Trump was a liar, but his rhetoric about about the opioid crisis and taking it seriously. He was right. And bringing back manufacturing, you know, everyone says and no one's ever going to do. Right. Yeah. Right. And one other thing I wanted to raise, our friends at Consortium News announced that they have been permanently suspended from PayPal. Uh, Last week, PayPal not only suspended Consortium News, but also seized $9,300 in their account. Uh, A bunch of us wrote uh, opinion pieces about this, and we took PayPal to task. And uh, Joe Loria, the editor-in-chief of Consortium News, said that Consortium would join a class action suit that has already been filed in the Northern District of California against PayPal because what they did amounted very simply to theft. As soon as we published those pieces, they released the $9,300. 
and then sent another letter saying, you're still cut off. You're cut off permanently. We'll never do business with you again. Nobody really knows exactly why this has happened. Um, But Joe Loria was able to get an actual human being on the phone at PayPal. And she hinted that they don't like PayPal's position on the Ukraine war, that PayPal is not anti-Russia enough. Um, she also admitted to Joe. The the person Joe was talking to correct. said she didn't like their posi- PayPal's position. That PayPal oh, didn't okay. like Consortium, Consortium News' yeah, position. That's what I would and uh, she also admitted that there had been no complaints about Consortium News from any PayPal users. That's outrageous. Mm-hmm. So this is just a decision by the hires, higher ups in the company. That's just awful. It's hey, awful. I, I, I want to uh, signpost the rest of the show real quick. We are, of course, going to talk about um, the Lithuania deciding to declare Russia a state sponsor yeah, of terrorism or terrorist spa- state. We're going to talk about uh, this resolution in the U.S. Senate to do the same thing and what that actually means. Uh, we will talk more about that aid package that is still... Not quite finished. Not not quite, but and, it should be by the end of the week. Yeah, we are going Excuse to. Excuse me. It's actually, you remember Biden asked for $33 billion. Now it's 40. Now it's 40. Yeah, now it's 40. Uh, it'll be getting to his desk presumably pretty soon. We still have people arguing that somehow we are not doing enough for Ukraine and not uh, giving them money and military aid fast enough. We are, of course, going to talk about the journalist who appears to have been murdered, just murdered uh, by the Israeli Defense Forces in Palestine. Palestine, a Palestinian American woman who worked for Al Jazeera, 20, 20 year, 24 year very, gener- veteran, very I believe. Very, very popular and highly respected Yeah, we, we are going to get into all of that. But first, we're going to take a little look uh, at a look back and forward at uh, policy toward Korea. Because uh, Mark Esper's new book, former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper's new book, is uh, throwing some light on on what Donald Trump's policy was. And I think it'd be interesting to look at the contrast between the two. So we're going to get into that first and then get to the rest of these very big stories later in the show. We're going to take a little break right now. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we're taking a minute to talk about U.S. military policy in Asia and a recent critique of Trump's policy occasioned by the release of former Defense Secretary Mark Esper's uh, new book. We are told Trump's Korea policy was even more reckless than we thought. (laughs) by an opinion piece in the Washington Post. And we are going to talk about what exactly was so reckless with K.J. No, a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific. K.J., thank you for joining us again. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So I want to talk about Trump's reckless policies and what exactly this Washington Post opinion writer is so mad about. And listen, I want to say to start, changing policy over Twitter is reckless. Right. I do not intend to pretend Trump was not a a mercurial character who didn't consider the consequences of his actions. I would also say we've had Joe Biden 
apparently changed policy just on the fly verbally several times over the last couple of months, only to have his aides come back and say, oh, no, no, he wasn't talking about regime change. Uh, No, 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 he wasn't talking about this new made up thing to govern our Taiwan policy. So, you know. The recklessness of Trump and the recklessness of Joe Biden are maybe more comparable than uh, than this opinion piece would like to assume. But also the craziest ideas listed in this opinion piece on the book are about withdrawing troops. Uh, President Trump had a lot of crazy and dangerous foreign policy ideas. His staff worked to thwart. Some of the most reckless ones came closer to becoming reality than the public knew at the time, including Trump's long stated desire to withdraw all U.S. troops from South Korea. So Trump apparently brought this up several times to Esper and others, and every other every time he was told the consequences would be disastrous, including losing the ability to deter North Korea. The move would also be welcomed by China. And so I want to start here, KJ. What do you think the consequences of withdrawing U.S. troops from South Korea would be? Um, I think the consequences would be similar to having the fox leave a hen house. Mm-hmm. Is you would have development, you would have peace, you would have security. Uh, North and South Korea could eventually, you know, find some means of coexistence, rapprochement, uh, reunification, and then there would have been a massive uh, development. But because North Korea would have connected uh, South Korea to China's Belt and Road. Exactly what was reckless and dangerous, I I would say that what was reckless and dangerous is that this would have endangered uh, Esper's good graces with Raytheon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what about this idea of deterring North Korea, right? What reason is there to believe that if the U.S. did not have soldiers on the other side of the border, that North Korea would immediately launch some kind of attack? I mean, one, I, I, you know... I have a lot of doubts as to whether South Korea would even be interested in that. But two, uh, or sorry, North Korea would be. But also South Korea has its own army. Yes, uh, South Korea has its own army. And South Korea's uh, uh, military is probably, you know, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh most powerful military in the world. It has, what, 3.5 million troops at its disposal, uh, including six, 700,000 active duty troops. Uh, it, its uh, military budget is uh, multiples that of North Korea. North Korea's military budget, just for one index to think about, is smaller. North Korea's military budget is smaller than the New York City Police Department. So, you know, to, to think that North Korea is interested in invading or attacking South Korea is an absurdity. North Korea uh, does have a deterrent and defensive capacity is primarily its, uh, you know, threat as coming from the United States. And if the United States were to withdraw from South Korea, then I think we would have the conditions opened up for a genuine rapprochement. Uh, one more point is that uh, the United States controls South Korea's military. That is, you know, kind of an abdication of sovereignty unseen in the modern era. Under wartime, which the U.S. can declare any time it wants to by declaring DEFCON 3, uh, it immediately has control over all of South Korea's military. And that is uh, another key threat. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about the back and forth on on paying for the U.S. military presence in South Korea? Because Trump's position was that South Korea is is ripping the U.S. off. 
I imagine uh, some people in South Korea should would say, you know, why should we pay you more to have your troops stationed on our land? But I admittedly, I do not know very much about the financial relationship between uh, the U.S. military and South Korea's military. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, who, who is paying for what and what the actual price tag is? Well, the South Koreans uh, are paying a little bit over $1 billion a year for the privilege of being militarily occupied. You know, this is not unlike in certain countries, you know, you pay for the bullet that, you know, kills you. So uh, what uh, Donald Trump wanted to do was he wanted to raise it to $5 billion. And the South Koreans were not going to go for that. And they pushed back hard. And eventually, through negotiation, it was brought back to $1.2 billion. That said, that's still a lot of money. South Korea you know, is struggling, and that money could be put to much better uses. So clearly, you know, that doesn't go over well. The other piece to remember is that the U.S. occupies large amounts of prime real estate inside uh, South Korea. For example, until very recently, con- controlled Yongsan, you know, which is like controlling Central Park. If you can imagine that, uh, you know, the South Koreans own Central Park in New York, had, uh, you know, soldiers in it. That was what it was like. Very recently, it built a new base for the United States in Pyeongtaek called Camp Casey. They spent $10 billion on that in two golf courses. So yes, you know, South Koreans are paying through the nose to be occupied militarily, and they're not happy about that. Trump thinking in this neo-mercantile way, you know, is always quid pro quo, but he actually had the wrong side of the equation. Mm -hmm. And talk to us about, uh, you know, who's happy in South Korea about this and who isn't. Can Can you tell us anything about popular opinion in South Korea about hosting U.S. troops and, you know, how much public support there is for that? Well, I would say there's very little public support for the U.S. military presence. There is an elite ruling class, which comes out of the Japanese colonial era, then became the quizzling pro-U.S., pro-colonial ruling class. And these people are quite happy about that. Uh, you know, some of the industry, uh, you know, titans of industry are happy about that. For example, Hyundai, the multinational chebol of South Korea, it originally got started as a subcontractor for Brown and Root during the Vietnam War. It became this, you know, global construction powerhouse. And so, you know, there are ways in which certain sectors of the industry have profited. And South Korea has always been treated as kind of this teacher's pet, a little bit of, you know, raised in a global capitalist hothouse because it needed to be trotted out as a success model against North Korea, which actually beat it hands down for until 1979 in terms of economic development. There's a complex relationship there. But, you know, coming back to your your key point, uh, you know, nobody is happy about U.S. troops. I mean, obviously, there are problems with environmental pollution, militarization and military culture, prostitution, uh, you know, all of these things are existing uh, ills that come from hosting troops. And if the South Korean population had its way, it would be quite happy to not have U.S. troops on its soil, which would then also allow South Koreans to uh, stop being so militarily focused because every single Korean male is conscripted into the military and it, you know, you know, puts them out of action for a couple of years and turns them into, you know, uh, you know, it just indoctrinates them into a military culture, which has been very, very toxic 
toxic masculinity pervades South Korean culture really comes out of uh, the military, which has to do with the fact that it's a subcontract to U.S. geopolitical design in the Pacific. Yeah, and it's an experience that I, you know, I personally know that some South Korean men really dread and, and you know, go to great lengths to to try to get out of. I want to come back to the the potential relationship between North and South Korea if the U.S. were to withdraw. Because I, I thought one um, also funny uh consequence of this, right? Well, oh my God, if, if Trump were to do this unimaginable thing and withdraw troops, you know, North Korea would immediately attack South Korea, Korea is the idea. But also China would welcome it. China would welcome it is a phrase offered. No, that's it. That's all we need to know. China would welcome it. And so therefore it must be bad. But I kind of want to ask how much other states actually would welcome it? Because I imagine that a divided Korea and a sort of, you know, I, I imagine a united Korean peninsula, even though that would probably be, who knows if that would happen. And certainly it would be a, a long process, but that would be a stronger country overall and a larger country overall. And I imagine it is possible that Japan might look askance at, at that possibility. It would be right on China's doorstep. They would have, you know, uh, again, a, a probably stronger economy overall as a trading partner, but also a more powerful neighbor. And so I wonder, you know, if, if the U.S. were withdrawn from the equation, what kind of relationship you know, would form between the two Koreas in the near term? And what would the other sort of political implications be? Well, if uh, the, you know, kind of a pro-U.S., uh, pro-Japanese ruling elite were to step aside, then what you would see, as we saw the early beginnings with the Moon administration, is you'd see attempts for some kind of confederation between North and South Korea. Remember, uh, one-third of all Koreans have relatives in the North. This is very, very recent. And for over a thousand years, there were unified, uh, you know, a peninsula. You know, everybody has family in the North. We still consider ourselves to be one Korea. This partition was artificially imposed by the United States as a wedge in its first salvo in the, you know, in the Cold War. And so the majority, I think, would be happy. I think, I do not think that North Korea... Uh, I think North Korea would be open to uh, confederation. Certainly they would benefit. And of course, China would benefit to the extent that um, all the entire region would benefit. China's policy towards security is neutral, comprehensive, and sustainable security. They believe in win-win cooperation. And China has never been a belligerent to the Koreas, uh, you know, historically. In fact, it's tried to protect uh, Korea against Japanese colonization. This is the reason why they lost Taiwan and started to be dismembered was in 1895, the Japanese started to colonize Korea. Korea asked for help from the Qing dynasty, China, and then China and uh, Japan went to war. As a result, uh, you know, uh, China was dismembered. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to ask uh, what we have seen from the Biden administration on Korea, it has really fallen out of the headlines. Even North Korea's, um, you know, weapons tests are not really getting that much attention. And I think it sort of remains uh, up in the air what plans the Biden administration has. We, we've talked a little bit about it in the past where they said they're, you know, they're maintaining a policy of what 
a policy of deterrence and they want to negotiate. They say they want to negotiate without preconditions, which sounds good. But then I wonder why haven't any negotiations taken place? So what, what do we know about what Biden wants or intends in South Korea? You know, this is a really good question. I mean, Korea is very, very important for U.S. Uh, strategy uh, in the Pacific, but in particular against uh, China. Uh, China has five vulnerabilities. The nose, the bridgehead or the bridge of the nose is South Korea. The chin is Taiwan. The jaw is Hong Kong. Throat is the South China Sea, and the back of the head, the occiput, is Xinjiang. And so China has a lot of vulnerabilities. Korea is very, very important in that regard. But currently, the Biden administration seems to be continuing a policy of strategic ambiguity, sorry, strategic patience towards North Korea, the, uh, you know, this is the Obama administration. But, you know, what, what we have to note is that Yoon Seok-yeol, the new uh, South Korean president, is very, very pro-U.S., he wants to hand U.S. foreign policy uh, back to the United States on a silver platter. And so, uh, you know, it won't be long before we will see more escalation, more weapons, and more, uh, I expect, you know, uh, confrontation. The problem is Yoon Seok-yeol is a very, very problematic candidate. You know, as opposed to, for example, the Philippines, where, uh, you know, Bong Bong Marcos won with an overwhelming landslide. Sogyal won with a 0.7% margin. That's practically the margin of error. He is a loose cannon. He is, you know, currently the, you know, the chief, the, the loose cannon in chief. And the U.S. is apprehensive about the kind of impulsiveness uh, that he may manifest. First, beginning with the fact that he wanted to move the Blue House into the South Korean Defense Building. This is like what? Uh, what? Like moving the White House into the Pentagon? Exactly. Wow. Exactly what he's doing right now. And this speaks to the kind of irrational, uh, you know, demeanor and thinking that is going on for the South Korean incumbent right now. I also have to say the phrase strategic patience when it comes to our relationship with North Korea, especially in light of the new uh, I mean, a new acceptance of what sanctions actually are. You know, this is sort of now everyone's openly saying, oh, yeah, sure. Sanctions are an act of war. Sanctions are part of our war arsenal. Sanctions are intended. You know, it really just makes it clear this is a strategic patience is, is the same as saying this is a war of attrition we are waging on the people of North Korea, you know, hoping that we make them as, uh, you know, uh, uncomfortable for long enough that they will do what we want and, and uh, you know, uh, change the regime, right, for us. And it, it, it casts it in a particularly ugly light, right? Yes. I mean, it's a euphemism for a collapsist doctrine that is choke off the country until it screams and comes to its knees. Yeah. And then perhaps we'll think about discussing it. Yes. But it is yeah. very ugly, destructive. We'll and the implication is that, oh, no, we'll just sit around and wait for wait for North Korea to come to a census rather than we will just slowly uh, do our best to torture the North Korean people. Right. However, we're achieving this is sort of uh, reports differ. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, KJ, is um, the story also tells us this uh, opinion piece about Mark Esper's book tells us that Trump often said he wanted to remove all U.S. troops from Africa. Uh, and, you know, mentioned that he tried to remove U.S. troops from Germany and it's like, stop making him look good. But he concludes this, 
that Donald Trump doesn't understand or even much care about the strategic implications of his decisions. Okay, you know, I'm not going to fight about that assessment. But it also says Trump sees alliances as transactional at best and at worst a needless burden. He cares more about dollars and cents than democracy or human rights. And I just wonder if you think those attitudes are particularly unique to Donald Trump among presidents or administrations. I mean, seeing alliances as transactional, I think there's evidence for that all over the show. I think that, you know, there's a term for that. It's called realism or neorealism. It is true that the U.S. did a, did a shift in the Pacific, Asia-Pacific, and it moved away from economics into geostrategics. This is what we call the Nye Initiative, and the Pacific pivot is a legacy of that. And so there is, on the one hand, those who would like to have, you know, economic and mercantile, neo-mercantile relations, of which Trump is the best example, uh, just kind of pragmatic, uh, you know, uh, quid pro quo, uh, transactional economic benefits. And there are those who see this as kind of a, like a global uh, struggle for hegemony, in which case it boils down to geostrategic, in which case you have to take China down. And dangerous, uh, you know, ideology that is driving the world to global war. Absolutely. That was KJ. No, KJ, thank you so much for joining us as always. Is there anywhere our listeners should go to look for uh, some of the work you're doing right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, they can go to Counterpunch, to Black Agenda Report, to MR Online. And also I'm on uh, Pivot to Peace, uh, peacepivot.org. All right. Thank you, as always, for your time, KJ. We are going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and you'll hear us again in a minute. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. A veteran Palestinian-American journalist for Al Jazeera was murdered in the West Bank today. Shireen Abu Akla was deliberately shot in the face outside Jenin by Israeli troops. Her producer was shot in the back. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett said the two were, quote, probably shot by Palestinians, unquote. But the producer said that there were no Palestinians in the area and that without warning, an Israeli soldier whom they were walking past simply opened fire on them. The Israeli military said they were in the area, quote, looking for terrorists. Israel's Supreme Court earlier this week gave the green light for the government to continue bulldozing Palestinian homes to make way for the construction of Israeli settlements. Even Israel's Haaretz newspaper called it, quote, another phase of the Nakba with Israeli court approval, unquote. We're joined by Miko Peled, human rights activist and author of the books The General's Son, The Journey of an Israeli in Palestine and Injustice, The Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. Welcome back, Miko. Thanks. It's good to be with you. Always great to have you, Miko. I appreciate you doing this. I want to start with the killing of Shireen Abu Akla. By all accounts, this was simply a cold-blooded murder. She and her crew were unarmed. They were wearing vests, identifying them as members of the press. There were no Palestinian fighters in the area. And yet she was shot in the face. And then her producer shot in the back. 
How does something like this happen, even in a in a Palestinian refugee camp? Are there no protections for journalists? Well, thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, words just don't. I mean, how how does one find words to even describe this? And how do we go beyond the, you know, the shock of something like this, even though we know there's really no reason to be surprised? When Israel does things, yeah. um, there is no protection for journalists if, if they are uh, if they are uh, there to to show the crimes that Israel is committing against Palestinians. Um, there's no protection for Palestinians at all. And certainly, if anybody wants to to go inside to a place like the Geneva refugee camp where Israel commits its crimes, supposedly or, or expecting that they will not be they reported. Or at least that there will be no no reporting of the other side, the Palestinian side. No, this is this is what happens. This is uh, I mean, Palestinians are being killed all the time. Mm-hmm. Israel has killed journalists or, or foreign activists, and I don't know words. I mean, words fail me. It's just all day. It's been like uh, it's just been a terrible, terrible day. And again, it's not because this hasn't happened before. But somehow it just uh, it's just uh, seems unfathomable, un- 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 you know. Yeah. Somebody like that, that so many people knew and respected, um, uh, could be shot with such ease. And of course, the Israeli prime minister right away comes out defending the Israeli army. The Israeli army conducted some kind of an inquiry and concluded that um, it was not soldiers that killed her. I mean, yeah. This is this is old news, uh, and we need to stop being surprised. We need to start taking action, clear action against the state of Israel. And so that these things will stop. Miko, you've spent a lot of time in the West Bank and in Gaza. Shireen Abu Akla was in the Janine refugee camp. Tell us what it's like to be in one of these camps. Most Americans, of course, have never been in one. I've only been in one. And I remember being struck that it was it was the size of a of a of a city of a medium sized city. So can you tell us when when someone goes to a refugee camp like in Janine, how big are they? How are they laid out? Who handles security? Are we talking about an area that's just in a state of chaos or or does the Israeli military have really no excuse for uh, something like this happening? Well, I just came back from Palestine three days ago. Uh, uh. Friday, I got back Friday, and uh, you know, two days ago. And um, I mean, the, the vast majority of camps are very small. They're, they're very crowded, very densely crowded. Some of them are no more than a square mile, with maybe twenty or thirty thousand uh, people living in in, in uh, terrible conditions, unspeakable conditions. The occupying force, which should be responsible for them does not provide them with anything. The Palestinian Authority provides some relief, you know, here and there. The camps are in many cases self-run. The Janine camp is, is you know, it's been a, it's been a, um, known for courageous resistance uh, going back years. I mean, the movie Janine Janine that came out in 2003, I believe, after the 2002 massacre at the Janine refugee camp um, during the Second Intifada. Uh, I think the movie Janine Janine speaks, you know, shows the camp right after an Israeli attack. Um, they've exacted many, many casualties. Uh, in other words, they've caused casualties to the Israelis. So when Israel, Israel enters the camp, they do so with some trepidation because they know the fighters in Janine are courageous and, and stand up. 
Um, it's, you know, it's, it's overcrowded, it's poor, uh, there's a lack of sanitation, lack of services, and, you know, everything that they have, be it Wi-Fi or electricity or water, is because of their own ability to, 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 to be creative and to provide themselves with these uh, services. These camps have been in existence, you know, for decades upon decades. They only become more crowded, more difficult. And the resistance, you know, is perfectly understandable. These people want to go home to the, where they belong, to their towns and villages that were taken by Israel, that were stolen by Israel in 74, 75 years ago. Uh, this, uh, this Shireen Abu Akla, who was killed, was an immensely popular uh, news professional from Al Jazeera. She had been with Al Jazeera for 20 years. She was popular in the United States. She was an American citizen. What do you think the U.S. reaction will be to this? What should the U.S. response be? Okay, well, these are two different questions. What the U.S. response yeah. should be... Two, def- two definitely different questions. Is, is, uh, is sanctions, immediate sanctions against the state of Israel, immediate halt of any uh, sales of arms, immediate halt of any, any uh, transfer of funding to Israel, Immediately making sure that none of the 501c3s that send millions of dollars to the state of Israel are uh, blocked completely until a thorough investigation takes place and the culprits are brought to justice. Uh, none of that is going to happen, of course. What will happen is some kind of, um, I'm probably nothing. I, don't, I doubt that there will be any kind, of, uh, any kind of statement from the United States. Um, I know that uh, Representative Flayne um, made a statement uh, in the House of Representatives, but I mean, this is not going to interest anyone. I know the Palestinian killed is, is, is not really news in America. It never has been. Even though, she, like you said, she's a journalist, a well-known, well-respected, well-loved journalist, and, uh, and had dual citizenship. This is, uh, you know, somebody compared, it, com- compared this to Ukraine. If this is happening to Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian journalists, what, what the news, uh, the main, the, the, you know, the corporate media would have done with this. But uh, anything short of full sanctions uh, of the state of Israel and, and, and the halt of sending military and money to Israel um, I think is inappropriate, and we know that that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's that's the case. The Israeli Supreme Court this week allowed the continued destruction of Palestinian homes to make way for Israeli settlements. Uh, the case specifically was about an area near the desert in the South Hebron Hills called Muzaffar Yata, where 1,000 Palestinians were di- were displaced. Haaretz this is the the newspaper, the Israeli newspaper, is calling this, quote, a shameful ruling and a crime against humanity. But the raising of Palestinian homes has become commonplace. We read about it even in the U.S. press all the time. So my question then is, do Palestinians have any legal protections at all to save their homes? We're not talking about people accused of committing violent crimes against Israelis or, or committing terrorists having, I mean, committing terrorism, having their houses knocked down. These are just just people, you know, living their lives and harvesting olives and and having their entire village uh, torn down. Do Palestinians have any legal protections to save their homes, or is this just going to continue happening until all the Palestinians are pushed out of of land that the Israelis want to claim? 
Yeah, it's a, it's, it's it's the latter. I mean, Palestine, the Israeli ports are just an arm of the Israeli uh, of the Zionist occupation machine, the Zionist uh, ethnic cleansing. They're no different, and so Palestinians have no recourse. And you know, uh, Palestinians don't commit acts of terrorism. We know because the 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 um, Amnesty International published a report that shows us very clearly that Israel has been engaged in the crime of apartheid since its very establishment in 1948. So any resistance to that is legitimate and cannot be uh, referred to as terrorism. So I think that's, that, that should be very, very clear. And, um, you know, I, I believe in, in um, within the boundaries of 1948 Palestine, what some people like to call Israel proper, without the West Bank, I believe there's something like 30,000 home demolition orders. Oh, my God. Not including the Nakab. In the Nakab, in the southern part of the country where the Palestinian Bedouins live, uh, they are under a, a separate kind of bureaucracy. Um, something, you know, I mean, uh, over 10,000 homes have been demolished in the last, uh, I believe, four years or uh, five years. Um, that doesn't include Jerusalem, of course, as uh, tens of thousands of homes being under demolition order being demolished in the West Bank. And the case of, uh, I'm sorry, Jerusalem, and the case of, of, of this, this particular community in the South Hebron Hills. These are Palestinian Bedouin communities. They were thrown off their land in the Nakba in 1948 and purchased land in what was then Jordan in, in, in the southern Hebron Hills. And now they're being once again subjected to ethnic cleansing by the state of Israel, which is now partaken, uh, taken the West Bank and, and all but annexed it officially. So these are people who already suffered once, now they're suffering again. They're living in very poor communities. Um, with very little resources, but they were these. Were, this is their home. I've been to South Africa Hills many, yeah. many, many times. Um, and the settlers there are vicious. Um, and even in cases with the Supreme Court, there was the one case in the Supreme Court actually said that they have the right to remain. The settlers made sure that they are they were terrorized and could not live in there uh, on their property. This is the reality in Palestine. You know, the only thing, the only way this is going to stop is when we finally make sure that the apartheid regime is over, where the state of Israel is facing such sanctions um, to a point where it collapses and can be replaced by a real free democratic Palestine. And I'll say, I'll say, finally, one more thing. You know, the fact that there is no representation for Palestinian interest in Washington D.C. at all. Yes. There is no office, no building, no representation of any kind that even shows that Palestine and Palestinians exist. I think that is a big part of the problem. Yeah, that that's a very important point. Hey, uh, can you give us an update on BDS? The the last thing we heard that was new on BDS was um, the state of Georgia's response to Abby Martin's lawsuit. Uh, and that was at least six months ago. Is there anything new? Any any roots that BDS um, may be making here in the United States? Not to my knowledge, uh, but I will say that if anything, um, the case for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against the outside regime of Israel is becoming stronger in every single day. Yeah. I think that's really what's important, and that's what we need to state. That anybody who had any doubt that the way to deal with Israel is through sanctions, boycott, and divestment, never mind what is happening on the ground, the enormous amounts of violence and innocent Palestinians being killed. Uh, there's a report today by Amnesty International that came out in February that shows very clearly, has all the data, 
It is apolitical. It shows very clearly that from day one, the state of Israel has been engaged in the crime of apartheid, which is internationally known as a crime against humanity. If that does not warrant sanctions and boycott and divestment, I don't know what does. Mm -hmm. Good point. Uh, The last time we spoke to you, Miko, the Israeli government was on the verge of collapse after the Ram Party withdrew from the coalition in a dispute over leavened bread in the Knesset. Ram rejoined the coalition, uh, well, officially this morning. Just how strong in this government is this government? Do you think it can survive for any length of time politically? Who knows? I mean, like we said last time, I think we spoke, I mean, nobody expected that Astali Bennett, who had just a handful of seats in the Knesset, would become prime minister. Right. Uh, but he did, and he has, and he managed there, managing to hold on to the coalition because at the end of the day, the members of the coalition would rather stand, would rather have a chair, you know, at the table, sit at the table, than be in the opposition. And as long as that is the case, they will remain in office. They will remain. I mean, it's it's very fragile. It's brittle. It could fall tomorrow, or it could it could it could withstand until uh, the next election. There's no way of predicting. Yeah. Okay, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Miko Pelled. He's a human rights activist and the author of the books The General's Son, The Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, The Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. Thanks for joining us, Miko. You're listening to Political Misfits. Before we take a break, we wanted to raise another yeah, issue. Yeah, there's a story. We, we haven't really gotten into this on the show because it's, you know, because it's far away. Right. <laughs> Sometimes right. you can't pay attention to everything happening in the world. Um, but Sri Lanka has been in a state of of just absolute chaos, yeah. uh, really for, for weeks now, for months. Uh, we talked about protests there. I think it was a month or two ago, there were protests about At office least. supplies, school yes. supplies. There was school a paper supplies. shortage. That's was that right. It? Yeah, yeah, there was a paper shortage. In fact, I think that they had canceled final they canceled exams. exams. Yes, because yeah. there was a paper shortage. Um, and, you know, it's sort of a, it, it, it's kind of a funny um thing to to trigger protests, not having enough paper. But, you know, Sri, Sri Lanka's economy has really been suffering. It relies a lot on tourism and remittances. And both of those have been really slow to return as we and I hate saying post pandemic because if the cases are going up quite a lot in the yeah. United States, at least. Right. Um, but yeah, so people have been wanting there for some time and there have been now weeks of protests over shortages of basic necessities. On Monday, the prime minister resigned. He has now apparently fled to a naval base. Uh, people are worried he's going to try to flee the country. There oh were reports God. that they were, you know, going to the airport to try and, you know, make sure he couldn't get out. But so that's the prime minister. The president has not resigned. And the president is the prime minister's brother. Oh, my God. And so people are still protesting because they want they they want him to leave also. And what seems to have been the catalyst for the violence that we've seen this week is a a government, a pro-government mob. This is the these are the words of like the AP and the BBC reporting on this, a pro-government mob attacking groups of peaceful protesters on Monday who were like, okay, prime minister's out. We want the president to go. Wow. And that is basically what has caused all hell to break loose. And so there are reports of, you know, of looting, of property damage, of arson and the rest. And the big report making headlines today is that apparently uh, the Sri Lankan military officers have been ordered to shoot anyone who they think is involved in setting fires or property damage. Wow. Which is pretty scary. 
It yeah, sure it's a pretty uh, a terrible response. Uh, there are rumors that a military coup could be underway because the president is also the secretary of defense and he apparently Perfect. was a, a military officer. The military has said, no, no, the, we have no plans for this. We are just here to keep the peace. We are following our orders and we will, you know. We will and, you know, co- pull this, back. This is not a country that has a long history of peace. No. Right. There was a there was a, a group called the Tamil or the Tigers of Tamil Elam, the Tamil Tigers that waged a, a, a war and insurgency, a civil war for many, many years. And that war only ended, what, 20 years ago? Not long ago. Yeah. This no. is. Uh, it was also, uh, there was a horrifying, you know, Bob and I talked about this maybe a year or so ago, a documentary on uh, British troops who went to the Sri Lankan army supposedly to train them in professionalism and whatever, to, to curb uh, abuses of civilians and, mm-hmm. and war crimes and just did absolutely nothing. It just was sort of a training ground for it's a terrible documentary that shows like all of these sort of military to military contacts that are supposed to have uh, big civilized countries treating smaller countries, how to operate their militaries better it results in nothing but more civilian yeah. death. It is yeah. just never. Yeah. That's it. So, you know, it's unclear to me who the protesters would like to take the reins from the current prime minister and president. But just because that's unknown to me right now doesn't mean that they don't have some kind of plan. But yeah, in the meantime, just watching watching chaos unfold there. And it has been it's pretty sad. And I feel like every day we see new headlines and it's worth remarking upon. And, and you know, maybe we'll try and get into it in a little more depth. Yeah, later this on. Is bad. Yep. We'll take a quick break now and come back with our second hour here on Political Misfits. Still live in D.C., still on Radio Sputnik. We'll see you in a minute. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. The House of Representatives last night approved another $40 billion for Ukraine by a vote of 368 to 57. The measure now goes to the Senate, where it's expected to win nearly unanimous passage by the end of the week. This bill is in response to President Biden's request for $33 billion, and it includes everything from weapons, intelligence support, training, and Ukrainian defense force salaries to food, tents, and medical equipment. Ukrainian President Zelensky said that U.S. weapons and materiel are now at the front and are in full use. Meanwhile, Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, said yesterday in a Senate hearing that President Putin is settling in for a long conflict in Ukraine. She said that Putin assesses that the Russians are better equipped to deal with the long term effects of war than Ukraine is. And European Union ambassadors ended talks in Brussels today, having failed to convince Hungary to stop buying Russian oil. We're joined by international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. He's going to help us walk through these issues. Welcome back, Mark. John, Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. We love having you. Let's start with this $40 billion package, Mark. I took a look at what it includes, and frankly, it includes everything. Ukraine will not lack for weapons, for weapon systems, intelligence support. We're even paying for uniforms and for salaries. 
Zelensky said yesterday that Ukraine will fight to the last man. Is that what we should actually be prepared for? Can you foresee a point in the not too distant future where we hear an announcement of peace talks? Yeah, um, I, I think there was one thing I wasn't quite clear from uh, that list of what is being supplied to Ukraine. And it's not clear, however, if the U.S. taxpayer is paying for dental coverage exactly. for Azov neo-Nazis. Exactly that, that right. That wasn't clear, but yeah. I suspect it's included in there. I suspect. <laughs> yeah, uh, I do not expect. I mean, this this is a full-blown proxy war yep. uh, being waged by the U.S. against Russia with w- one increasingly slim proxy degree of separation. Um, and this is uh, – we, we are closer to World War III, uh, to, to a conflict between NATO and Russia, between the U.S. and Russia, than I, I believe we were during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, so um, I do not expect uh, peace talks to resume in any seriousness anytime soon um, w- with this level of support. Um, uh, it, I still believe, and and a lot of U.S. military analysts agree that uh, at the end of the day, simply because of the capability for escalation superiority and political will, that uh, you know Russia will succeed uh, with the aims of its intervention in Ukraine, but the cost uh, will be high. Um, and that is becoming increasingly clear. Uh, the only question there is is how much more do things escalate between Russia and the U.S. and NATO? But this, this could go on for at least months, probably uh-huh. years. Tell us a little bit about the support that President Putin has from the Russian people. Of course, as you might imagine – We're not seeing things uh, in the U.S. media like public opinion polls, for example. But it it seems, if you read between the lines, even in the U.S. media, that this war is actually quite popular uh, in Russia, at least at this early stage. Yeah, um, I mean, the numbers of support and I mean, not only government numbers, but also the the uh, often Western funded uh, oppositionist, very much anti-Kremlin Lavada uh, concurs uh, and the numbers fluctuating in the mid 80s. Oh, my for, God. For support for this operation. And and the question is, you know, why? 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 Because Russians have been seeing what the West hasn't been seeing, which is thousands of uh, people in East Ukraine, in Donbass, being killed by this regime mm-hmm. since it seized power in 2014 with open U.S. support. That is why. Lithuania yesterday called Russia a perpetrator of terrorism and genocide because of the war in Ukraine. It's the first country to do so. Um, What does this mean, Mark? Is there any policy change that comes with such an announcement or are these just words? First of all, this is a bit rich coming from a NATO member after the last couple decades of of, of NATO interventions and, uh, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands racked up in uh, Iraq, uh, you know, but also in Libya, Syria and, and, and so on. I mean, Abu Ghraib, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, torture uh, in, in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but um, no, this the the only 
possible policy change from this is Russia may be so fed up with Lithuania serving as the yapping uh, rhetorical attack dog of the United States that it may just cut off relations altogether with Lithuania. Not that that would make that much of a difference. Right. Right. Uh, You know, we we see this all the time on the part of the United States. In fact, we were just talking about it in our editorial meeting this morning where um, the U.S. has, you know, Cuba, for example, on the list of state sponsored uh, terror. Well, you need a Ph.D. in history to even find a semi-credible accusation of Cuba supporting uh, terrorism. I mean, even the accusations just go back generations. Um, I, I don't know what value these lists have. Yeah, this is just absurd. I mean, the the U.S. was literally supporting head chopping, suicide bombing, moderate jihadis in Syria that were literally unquestionably allied and embedded with al-Qaeda for years. Yes. The U.S. US supported the Kosovo Liberation Army in uh, Serbia, uh, which it had itself listed as a terrorist organization until right before it decided uh, to start bombing Serbia. And then suddenly the, the, the terrorists of the Kosovo Liberation Army were the new government of Kosovo. Uh, so, I mean, this is just a- absurd – uh, hypocrisy coming from the United States. When the United States uh, went into Iraq, uh, there were uh, in the first month alone, there were some 3,900 civilian dead, uh, according to the Iraq body count. Now, the official UN toll in Ukraine so far is 3,381 civilians killed from from the conflict ensuing both sides, its artillery, its uh, so forth. So yes, uh, Ukraine has almost certainly, well, we, we know it's killed some of what it considers its own citizens because it's been firing ballistic missiles at Donetsk and so forth, even you know since February. But um, it's almost certainly higher than that. But I mean, to, to, to try to use that type of language to describe this when it is in line uh, and and probably far less than the civilian damage from the shock and awe bombing campaign of the United States during their uh, uh, invasion and occupation of Iraq. I, it's it's absurd Orwellian hypocrisy. It's, it, it does not really it should not be dignified with a response or or you know even a public hearing not to get too far off the topic but you've reminded me something uh, of something that happened when i was still at the cia it was during the uh it was during the war in kosovo and uh we had made this decision that because the the kosovo whatever it was called the liberation army was bombing serbia that you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend and so we were going to start supporting them and we sent a message to the russians a diplomatic note saying uh, we're going to uh, join forces with the Kosovo Liberation Army. You stay out of it. And as soon as we sent this diplomatic note, the Russians began bombing them. And I remember participating in a secure video teleconference where one of the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, well, we didn't expect the Russians to get involved. So now to, what do we do? And the determination was, oh, crap, we can't do anything. And so... <laughs> 
And so we didn't. And I thought, wow, now that's a smart use of military power right there. Yeah. It's like we couldn't believe that the Russians didn't do what we told them to do. We couldn't believe when, when it. We, when we announced we're going to start, uh, you know, supporting terrorists. Exactly. Have, and they're know, like, yeah, no, uh, you're not doing that. 10, yeah. yeah. Wow. The Ukrainian military, Mark, captured uh, three Russian soldiers uh, not too long ago, and they announced today that they would go on trial for war crimes. One of the soldiers is accused of killing a man after raping his wife, but it could be that the Ukrainians are using him as a symbol rather than for anything that he actually did. Two other soldiers are accused of stealing Ukrainian grain, which I found fascinating. Are these going to be show trials? What do you think comes out of something like this? Yeah, of, of, of course it's show trials. Now, I mean, which is not to say that horrible things don't happen anymore. Sure. And individual of course. soldiers on all sides don't commit war crimes. But I think that there is far more evidence of systemic war crimes by the Kiev regime's forces against their own people for the last eight years and coming over the last two months than any anything systemic by the Russian armed forces. And we have to be aware that we are deeply within a propaganda war. If you'll remember during the U.S. attacks leading to uh, the the bombing uh, and regime change in Libya, the U.S. was calling uh, uh, the Libyan government of Muammar Gaddafi their justification uh, for uh, their um, shifting from uh, humanitarian assistance to to bombing was genocide. And one of the things that they accused of is that Muammar Gaddafi is handing out rape pills to all his troops and they're just raping everyone. And, you know, this is this is the type of, you know, uh, touch, you know, to the heart, uh, you know, demonization and propaganda rhetoric that that works. It does. It it works on an, an unthinking population that cannot remember the last time that your government used such propaganda uh, to justify yeah. uh, its military interventions through the demonization of its opponents. Yeah, it seemed to me that uh, that these trials are absolutely for Western consumption, uh, not even so much for Ukrainian consumption as they yeah, are. We have we have seen Ukrainian troops themselves tape themselves and post then themselves post the videos of them shooting uh russian prisoners of war yeah. and letting them bleed out to death on the ground at this point a show trial well you know maybe that's yeah. better than the alternative there were um there were not just reports but uh credible reports of Ukrainian soldiers uh, capturing Russian soldiers, taking their their cell phones, the Russian cell phones, calling the parents of the Russian soldiers and saying, guess what? We're going to kill your son now and then killing him while on the phone with his parents. Yeah, we yeah, that 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 credible report again, is the Kiev regime forces taping themselves exactly. doing that Committing and a then war crime. posting them up. So, I mean, it's not really something that is very easily denied and, and you're just getting into to a game of propaganda yeah. when you try to deny those things. They, 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 they tape and post it themselves. So, yes, that's what yeah. I would consider extremely credible. 
Mark, the Russians earlier this week used a hypersonic missile on a target in Odessa, and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said that there is no defense for such a weapon. They move so quickly that you just can't shoot them out of the sky. Why was this missile used, and and why was it used on Odessa? What was the message that was being sent? The Kinjal, yes, it is it, it, an incredible um, a piece of destructive, very fast weaponry. You can move up to five times the speed of sound. And, and yes, uh, neither the U.S. nor any country has anything can, that can defend against it. And from my understanding, there were actually three of them fired at uh-huh. Odessa. It is uh, almost uh, certainly that uh, they were fired at uh, Western weapons uh, that have arrived uh, in uh, Ukraine uh, going into the hands of the Kiev regime. And uh, to to de- use the Kinjal is a demonstration that, that Russia can strike anywhere in Ukraine at any time uh, with, with complete accuracy, and there's absolutely nothing that anyone can do about it. And that is, of course, a demonstration uh, to NATO. But I would uh, suspect that particularly with Odessa, we have uh, – previously seen um, an anti-ship missiles, uh, what is believed to be anti-ship missiles, uh, fired from Kiev regime forces that took out the uh, flagship of the Russian fleet in the Black Sea. And while supposedly these were Neptune, uh, indigenous Ukrainian uh, anti-ship missiles, of which they only had one battery, and I suspect that was probably targeted in the early days of the war. Uh, the UK, even before the conflict began, was promising delivering Harpoon anti-ship missiles. Right. Uh, I I would not be surprised uh, if uh, that was one of the targets, either that or one of the other plethora of uh, you know uh, military equipment that uh, the West uh, has provided with the Kiev regime. And once again, that is a demonstration that, you know, whatever you give them, we will destroy before they can even put it to use. Well, that you've you've kind of half answered my next question, too. I've got a Ukrainian friend from Odessa and every day she's just either yelling or crying about Odessa that the Russians have to leave Odessa alone. Uh, There's no uh, military interest in Odessa. They're killing civilians. She's going on and on and on about Odessa. Well, that is where Western weapons come in. That is where the weapons are then divided up and sent to different parts of Ukraine. Is that the, the next Russian strategy is to is to go after Odessa and to make it difficult or impossible for the weapons that come in uh, to be distributed? Yeah, first of all, there's probably more weapons at this point coming through Lvov, but but okay. certainly Odessa is a, a distribution destination for the, the south of Ukraine and, uh, you know, particularly for anything to do with, um, uh, you know, uh, naval. I mean, that's that's it. That's that's all that uh, that the Kiev regime really has at this point. I do not suspect that there will be any near future within the next month or two military operations against Odessa. I think it will take that that long or longer. And Russia right now is focusing its forces on completing 
the uh, cauldron against the what what is the majority of the Ukrainian regular military uh, in the Donbass, and that that will be time consuming and grinding to say the least. But uh, I do not see this conflict ending before Russia moves on uh, elsewhere in East Ukraine at, at the very least, and Odessa will certainly be uh, something that Russia will move in a much more um, substantial way at some point in the future. It, it would be, you know, the Kiev regime's last real uh, port city. And yes. it has a long history, of course, Odessa with Russia. And, um, uh, you know, certainly there, uh, while, while not everyone in Odessa would welcome, uh, you know, Russian forces, there is a population that, that would. And you have to remember the Odessa massacre, where the Kiev regime, you know, a couple months after seizing power, uh, burned uh, uh, some uh, 50 uh, citizens of Odessa alive, uh, the uh, far right forces uh, in support of the regime that had just seized power. And that is very much on the minds uh, of uh, people in Odessa as well. Maybe maybe not your friend, but, you know, political right. opinions right, and, sure. and concerns uh, do, do, do vary. But until that point, until Donbass is taken care of and then there's a reassessment done about where to go next, um, I think you'll continue to see these type of standoff strikes against mostly against any Western weapons that come in again particularly about anything that could be used against Russian naval forces off off the coast of Odessa. Could you see a situation in the near future where there are actually Russian troops in Odessa? Yes, but uh, that will be some months off. Yes. Okay. Tell us about this determination by the intelligence community here in the United States, raised by the director of national intelligence in a Senate hearing yesterday, that the Russians are prepared for a long-term war. I thought we all assumed that that was the case. Is this a surprise to anybody? I, I think it's a surprise to the general public, which is told that Ukraine is winning and is going to be in Vladivostok. Right. Uh, you know, the Kiev regime forces are going to be storming Vladivostok. And, uh, you know, there is uh, a, there was a presumption that uh, Western sanctions would have already destroyed the ruble and destroyed the Russian economy. I mean, that. Jen Psaki was using those exact uh, words uh, and that Russia would just have to give up the war uh, immediately. So uh, the, the, the fact that this could go on for years is is a shock to a great deal of not just, you know, the the common uh, people uh, in the West, but seemingly to many of its own uh, politicians that are making these decisions. So I, I think it does need uh, being said by someone uh, like the director of national intelligence. Maybe it would provide a sobering moment for some of the more uh, insanely hawkish uh, politicians uh, who are, uh, you know, um, so quick to pull pour uh, more fuel onto the fire of yeah. this conflict. You know, one of the things that's not being discussed here in the United States is what effect this war has on the U.S. economy. We keep hearing that the economy is robust, that the, that the deficit is shrinking, that even though inflation is high, uh, uh, the overall economy is healthy. Uh, and we seem to come up with like magic, with billions upon billions of dollars just laying around 
that, you know, God knows we don't have the money to, for, for roads or bridges or hospitals or schools or food or security. Or COVID testing or, you, or COVID, COVID testing. Yeah. That's right. Or, but, or baby food, evidently. Yeah. <laughs> but by God, we have enough money for all the weapons and weapon systems that the Ukrainians uh, could possibly want. And I, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm a little I'm a little PO'd by the fact that we're even that we're even paying Ukrainian army salaries. I mean, that's just over the top. Um, we're not talking about the cost to the U.S. taxpayer of this war. And in fact, this wasn't even raised in this Senate Intelligence Committee hearing. This was an open hearing, so it was at the unclassified level. Uh, but it wasn't even raised. The DNI wasn't even asked any questions about what the cost is uh, to the United States. And then she went so far as to say that Putin is in it for the long haul, which presumably means then that the United States is in it for the long haul. But nobody's talking about how in the world we pay for this. I just don't get it. What are your thoughts, Mark? I'm, I'm the official numbers out of. You know, the, the uh, uh, U.S. Treasury is that U.S. GDP fell by 1.4 percent in the first quarter yeah. rather than the expected growth. I mean, uh, uh, it's uh, one of the factors that not talking about the economic consequences of U.S. sanctions uh, on Russia for uh, not only uh, uh, citizens of the world, right, but U.S. citizens in particular, yeah. the prices they're paying increase for everything and trying to brush it off as as Putin's price or, or you know, Putin's uh, price at the pump, price increase at the pump. No, uh, the majority of that is due to Western sanctions right. against Russia, right? I mean, obviously, there is an attempt to say there's some type of cause and effect here. Um, and and regardless, uh, uh, energy prices would have gone up a certain amount, but obviously a much greater amount is due to a, a direct uh, economic uh, intervention uh, into the intervention. Um, so that is something that um, right now you do not see political forces in the United States making hay with. Correct. Uh, Republicans are largely bipartisan uh, in support uh, of uh, the Biden administration. But as this goes on, and again, once again, gasoline prices go up in the U.S., the price of everything goes up. I mean, uh, yeah. we've already got uh, at least 10 European uh, Union countries that are facing double digit inflation that's coming to the United States as well. And, you know, while it's double digit inflation in the West, I mean, we're going to be seeing starvation, uh, famine, starvation and, and civil unrest uh, across Africa, uh, uh, both sub-Saharan and, and uh, in North Africa uh, because of so much of a reliance on, on Russian wheat. Russia is the number one exporter of wheat, uh, sunflower, which is used as cooking oil by most much of the world outside the United States, uh, and so on. It's going to be uh, an incredible cost, and the majority of that cost is due to to Western sanctions, and that that should be recognized. But of course, uh, politically, uh, you seem to have the Western press that is uh, self censoring on that. Yeah. The DNI said something yesterday that was fascinating to me, uh, Mark. She said that U.S. policymakers are mulling what would allow Putin the opportunity to declare victory and end the war. 
She said that Putin is undeterred and wants a tangible victory. First of all, it's unbelievably arrogant to say that we would allow Putin to declare victory. But what do you think a tangible victory would actually look like? I, I think that was pretty clear from the very beginning because Russia's yeah. it, uh, it hasn't changed. The has it? They haven't changed no. at all, right? I mean, uh, you uh, they, they have to um, recognize uh, that Crimea chose to rejoin Russia. They have to recognize the dependence of Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, they have to uh, undergo a process of denazification. Uh, uh, Perhaps it's better termed as debanderization. Mm -hmm. uh, and while well, the demilitarization is, well, is mostly being carried out by the Russian military against the Ukrainian military, but I assume that there are uh, some political uh, interests, uh, you know, there as well. Um, and so, I mean, that that has been pretty clear, I think, from the beginning. But as this conflict goes on. Those costs are at going only going to rise, and we see that right now in Kherson, which is the large region above Crimea uh, in uh, southern Ukraine, or what used to be southern Ukraine anyway, uh, where the Russian government is uh, now responding to um, uh, requests uh, from the uh, Ukrainian uh, head of the republic now under the uh, civil administration that's been put in place by Russia, someone a, who has a long history of Ukrainian uh, politics, uh, Saldo. He was an opposition party leader that was banned by the Kiev regime, as every opposition party was. Um, and uh, he has previously been the mayor of Kherson uh, for some 10 years. Um, he's talking about um, about joining Russia. Uh, and as this conflict goes on, I mean, th this conflict ends with either the partition or the complete balkanization of Ukraine. As the conflict continues, as it is dragged out more, that line becomes more, not less. And that's a, that's a question. Where does the line of that uh, um, partition or balkanization of Ukraine end? And what kind of regime is left in Kiev uh, to clean up whatever rump state they have left at the end? That's where this conflict ends. That's the tangible yeah. result. And the costs are getting higher as it's dragged on. Yes, indeed. And Russia is made to bleed, not less. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, that was the voice of Mark Sloboda. Mark is an international affairs and security analyst. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back with our final guest. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou. And John, there was some really uh, sad news that is sort of relevant to our next segment that was just breaking today. And that is that the U.S. has hit another high when it comes to overdose deaths. I saw that. 
more a hundred thousand overdose deaths in 2021 more than any previous year i believe the previous year was also a record it was up but this was up 15 percent um this is according to statistics from the national center for health statistics and of course you know we've been talking about this problem on the show for a while now part of it is um more potent drugs, right? Part of it is the the presence of fentanyl where you don't expect it. Part of, part of it is lost access to treatment, social isolation, and this drug supply. This is uh, the causes the the, the um, increase is being attributed to. More Unbelievable. Than, this is like the third year in a row, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I'm trying to figure I'm trying to figure out exactly what the those uh, like what the trend is. But I mean, we've been talking about this every year. More than 80,000 of those 100,000 deaths. So the vast, vast majority uh, were from using opioids. They include prescription pills, but also fentanyl. Um, fentanyl is a drug that, you know, is the latest boogeyman especially for law enforcement. And you yes. get these really outrageous, really, uh, um, I mean, nonsensical stories of, you know, an officer got some fentanyl on his lapel and right. passed out. Right. Or, you know, this is more like, this is mass hysteria. This is yeah. like, you just had a fainting spell, whatever. Yeah, fentanyl got into the air system and, you know, right. five people had to go to the hospital. I just think that is that is not true. But, you know, fentanyl is a lot more potent than a lot of the drugs uh, that that people are used to. And so if it is present when you don't expect it to be present or present in greater quantities, it is really dangerous, which is why things like fentanyl test strips are important, uh, you know, in, important harm mitigation tools. But and, you know, there are um, uh, law enforcement officers. I, I know this for 100 percent fact, law enforcement officers that will not carry Narcan uh, because They've decided that if you're so weak and so stupid to do fentanyl or opioids, then you deserve to die. My doctor told me that. My doctor told me that he is refusing to treat a local sheriff here in the in the D.C. area Mm -hmm. because the local sheriff has ordered his deputies to not carry Narcan. Wow. How is that legal? I can't imagine that that it is not to carry Narcan. Yeah, that seems. Well, that seems like something we should look into. Yeah, I'm looking at these trends now. Overdose deaths uh, jumped to previously unseen levels in the first half of the pandemic. This is according to the Washington Post. They rose 30 percent from 2019 to 2020. I mean, you know, I think we can all pick out what you don't have. But you don't have very much money. Maybe right. you've lost your job. You're stuck inside your house. It's hard to get an appointment anywhere. Everything's gone. You know, everything has gone virtual, which is okay if your internet is set up and adequate and your doctor is doing internet service, you know, and, and but nobody dies, right? Mm-hmm. Your doctor's mm-hmm. still alive. You're okay. But yeah, it put a strain, put a strain on, on everyone. So I, I would like to get into this a little bit more and, and what it says uh, and, and what our response to it should be instead of, um, you I know, agree with you. because really what we saw, what we've seen so far in this, uh, this is a crisis, like we've hit a record. We hit a record last year, but this is a crisis that's been going on for uh, more than a decade, right? Yes. And one that, as we talked about earlier in the show, probably helped propel Donald Trump to the White House because he did yeah. speak uh, really yes, clearly about it and and acted as though he took it really seriously. You I don't know, think he really did anything about it. My but. brother-in-law died of an opioid o- overdose way back in 2005. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was like 
epidemic in 2005. Here we are in 2022 and we don't have a handle on it yet. It's actually getting worse every single year to the point where it's brought down uh, the average lifespan of the average American. Yeah, there is a there is a little explanation in the story about how between what is it between 2015 and 2019 young Americans lost an estimated 1.2 million years of their lives oh from drug God. overdoses. Oh yeah, it's God. wild. And I mean as we've talked about before there I think the impulse to go after Purdue and after the Sackler family sure. and after doctors uh, overprescribing. Sure. I mean, I think that's correct. Right. I think it has been made abundantly clear that Purdue Pharma uh, went to illegal, took illegal measures to promote these drugs, to to push doctors to overprescribe them. You know, they used kickbacks. Mm-hmm. They, they did things that you are mm-hmm. not allowed to do to promote these these uh, addictive drugs. But, you know, it's not like opioids are only used in the United States. Right. And it is not an inevit- inevitability that if you need to take something to manage your pain, that you be- will become addicted to it and that that will, you know, uh, engender an incredibly destructive cycle in your life. Yes. Right. So we have to look outside of, uh, you know, the sheer number of prescriptions to the social factors that contribute to this. And we seem to be just absolutely as a nation unable to respond to this in a sort of Agreed. Public health or mental health way and only to treat it as a law enforcement problem. And, and that simply is a mistake from the beginning. Yeah. You know, every every dollar of the billions that that is being collected or will be collected um, as parts of this, uh, this settlement with the Sackler family and the big uh, producers, every dollar of it should go to treatment. Every single dollar of it. It shouldn't go to the Treasury as a punitive fine or whatever. You're exactly right when you say that we have to treat this as the medical emergency that it is. Yeah. This is a mental health and medical emergency, not a law enforcement But it's also a social and economic emergency. And so, again, yeah, I think that, you know, we should treat this as a medical medical and psychological emergency Mm -hmm. and and treat it that way instead of spending, you know, just— uh, f- inflating the budgets of small town law enforcement. Yes. But, you know, it, that is still intervening after the fact. That is still, I learned this term recently, is the term heroic medicine to differentiate from preventative medicine. I so see. heroic medicine is you wait around twiddling your thumbs until somebody gets sick and then you sweep in with your cape. I mean, that's uh-huh. a cartoonish way of describing yeah. it. <laughs> but that's still an after the fact, um, you know, intervention what if, what if people could just take their pain medication and take some time, you know, what if one, you could take some time off work instead of just, you know, popping pills to, to manage pain, right? Right. What if you could afford the medication you need and you didn't have to steal it? You know, what if when you were concerned that maybe you were forming a habit or this wasn't working the way that you wanted it to, you could afford to go to the doctor and you wouldn't have a a $50 copay that would put it out of your budget. You know, so there are all of these things. And what about, that's not even getting into, you know, uh, despair, which is something that, you know, I mean, it's a, it's an accepted term, right? Deaths of despair, diseases of despair. Okay, well, it's not like despair is, is inevitable either, right. right? Why do we have this crisis of, of anxiety and that's despair right. in this country? That's right. And, you know, the, the New York Times, just to take this one step further, the New York Times has been reporting, there have been three articles so far about the effect that that the pandemic has had on adolescents and especially mm-hmm. on teenage girls mm-hmm. where we're seeing just unprecedented levels of de- of depression and self-harm of suicide attempts mm-hmm. and mental health professionals just aren't 
sure yet, even two and a half years into this thing, how to deal with it. And part of this also, and I be, this is a story that also caught my eye that I've been uh, hoping to get into with uh, someone who knows more than you and I do later this week or next week. But the the New York Times story that you're referring to, it describes a scene in a doctor's office where she's seeing patients every 15 minutes because she is a psychiatrist. And that is actually what happens, right? If you if you are going yes. to get a drug dispensed to you, yes. you, you are almost never engaging in talk therapy with the doctor who is prescribing you drugs. Mm-hmm. And that I think is also a real a problem. Not that those two people have to come together, but that you cannot really substitute uh, talk therapy and behavioral therapy with medications, right? And yeah. it does make people feel like, okay, well, just give me a pill to like fix this problem. And yeah, sure. If right. it, they, they help a lot of people, but like the uh, unavailability of other kinds of therapy and ways to sort of t- learn how to manage your own emotions, right? Yes. Learn how to manage your own anxiety. Just having someone to, to talk to you about this stuff, that is a real problem. And that is very expensive. You know, it's and another expensive. problem when you are talking about an insurance, an insurance uh, situation, right, where you, you are limited to doctors in your network. But an important part of therapy is like is having the right emotional connection with someone. That's right. And that's not necessarily going to happen with the three people who are in your network who are close enough to you that, that you could conceivably get to. Right. Yes. Whether you drive there or take public transportation. And so, again, we're just caught up in this just really inhumane. I've system. learned I've learned, too, that just using the D.C. area as an example, mm-hmm. um, there's a six month waiting list for an appointment for an adolescent to speak with a, a child psychologist that you you can't even if you can find somebody that's in your network. Wow. There are so many people that need help right now that you can't just call and make an appointment for Tuesday and then, you know, start therapy. Uh, oh, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard it, to get it's an appointment. Hard. It's people hard. Are, people and, are and, that, and as you just said, that therapist may not even be a match for you. Yeah. Sometimes you need to try two, three, four different therapists. Yeah. Which means you need to have some time and you need to have some money that you're yes. able to part with. That's right. Or you're just going talking to someone who you don't necessarily like, who you don't necessarily trust. And yes. that undercuts the entire purpose of the of the um, the mm-hmm. procedure. Absolutely right. Outrageous. right. Hey, uh do you want to do you want to hear a story about fines since you mentioned uh, Purdue Pharmacy getting oh, a big yeah, fine? Oh yeah, I love it. Remember Colonial Pipeline? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that got hacked. Oh god, that was a, I mean that was actually really interesting. That felt like a sort of watershed moment in the United States that hack. Uh the yes. US Department of Transportation's Pipelines and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration uh listed they issued a list of probable violations by Colonial Pipeline. And a proposed compliance order to the operator of, again, the largest fuel pipeline in the country. So they want to fine them about a million dollars for violations. And let me tell you what some of these violations were. Uh, Control room management, failure to follow procedures such as point-to-point verification for documenting these displays, failure to comply with field equipment for 87 uh, safety-related pressure transmitter alarms in 2019. Colonial Pipeline, the agency note says, also didn't verify for the years 2017, 2018, and 2019 if its safety-related alarm set point values and descriptions were correct. So basically all of this stuff that's supposed to uh, set off an alarm if something goes wrong, they couldn't tell you if it if actually was what the description said it was or if it worked the way it was supposed to work. 
And so basically what the Department of Transportation is saying is that these very lapses in safety and in security could have set the stage for something like the hack that oh you experienced. Gosh. Right. So I think that is I, I think that that is hilarious. Well, hilarious sort of telling. And also the fine a million dollars. OK, is that going to put them out of business? Is no. that going to be anything more than a slap on the wrist? Oh, no, no. No, not at all. And this is the thing. This company is just as a reminder, because I remember doing this kind of research when that when that hack um, came about. Colonial Pipeline is a disaster. Colonials in the 1990s, they spilled millions of gallons of gasoline across several states in the southeast. They paid a thirty four million dollar fine for violating the federal Clean Water Act. That at the time was the largest civil penalty in the United States history. Uh, Colonial had to make more than $30 million worth of environmental upgrades. But that is just talking about the 90s. It went on in later years to spill more. It just has been spilling oil up and down the East Coast for decades now. And for decades, you know, the the Department of Transportation, their pipeline authority every once in a while will come down and go like, hey, mm-hmm. hey, what if you like <laughs> fix this crack on your pipeline? What if you made this alarm into a, into a system that would actually work? Yeah, it is. It is outrageous. And See, so, yeah, it, it makes you think about these poor people at Standing Rock, too, who were complaining about exactly these kinds of problems. And uh, the government and regulators just didn't want to hear it. Yeah. But this is just sort of an example of these these uh, organizations who are, uh, work at in dollar amounts that are so enormous, right, are simply allowed to continue breaking the law, uh, polluting our waters, polluting our soils, injuring people's health. Yes. And, and getting these slap on the wrist fines. Yes. Because what are you going to do otherwise? You know, nationalize the, the pipeline? I yeah, mean, yeah, right. sure. Great. Do it. Right. They deserve it at this point. But what else can you do? And so, again, it gets back Ugh. to, like, uh, not illegal if you have the money. So, yeah, because I've seen Colonial B- Pipeline back in the news there. Mm-hmm. Gave me the warm fuzzies. We're going to take a, a quick break here and come back with some last headlines. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we are going to talk a little bit about what is the situation of the COVID pandemic in the United States right now, but also what the pandemic has has done to our healthcare system and working conditions within it, particularly for nurses. Joining us for this conversation is Dr. Iyabo Obasanjo. She's professor of public health at the College of William & Mary in Virginia. Dr. Obasanjo, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about the working conditions in the healthcare sector and particularly for nurses. The Nation had an article earlier this week on this topic and and noted that there have been quite a few high profile strikes over the course of the pandemic and that nurses had won some concessions from their employers. But the problem of understaffing remains prevalent and seems to be bigger than individual hospitals. Uh, The story notes that hospitals generally have not been willing to commit to nurse to patient ratios, uh, presumably because it would increase their labor costs. 
And so far, only California has any mandates on, on that issue. The story also references this lean healthcare model that started to get a lot of attention in the few years prior to the pandemic. It, it just seems to be a, an effort to streamline things within an inch of their lives. And it says a lot about, you know, improve, uh, cutting waste, improving outcomes. But uh, I suspect that it might have some... Um, negative effects as well. And then just today, we had demonstrations by healthcare workers in Pennsylvania and in Illinois. And those were just the top two on a Google search, right? I bet there were demonstrations elsewhere. And so I want to ask um, wh whether anything has really changed for healthcare workers on the other side of this pandemic that has, you know, showed us the danger and the value of their work. The answer, unfortunately, is no. And um, from nurses down, that's where you have actually um, the stress of the pandemic occurred. All the healthcare workers, people, um, certified nursing assistants, people that work in care homes, um, and all those staff, nurses and below, were severely exposed, had um, higher rates of mortality than the general population, higher rates of cases. Mm. Doctors actually had lower rates of cases than the general population mm -hmm. right? because they, they tended to be more educated and more, they, by the time a doctor sees a patient is in his PPE, that's not the same for the janitor that is cleaning. And, and yeah. when things are stressed, those are the people that are exposed to, to patients without enough PPE. And at the beginning, this actually happened quite a bit. So nurses are down. Yeah. Um, were exposed. They do not. They did not get the kinds of um, um, response from their employers um, that they should have gotten. Although they were the ones caring for patients who are paying. Um, again, um, what is what has, has really generally happened in almost every job, including the healthcare system, is that employers care about where the money is coming from, not the people they're paying. Right. Mm -hmm. Staff, you, you are paying them. It's a pandemic. Staff are human beings. They'll be affected. But we are more focused on the patients because that's where the outcomes and the and the the your your those are the ones that can they can stop paying. Right. They can go to another clinic and you want that reputation to be maintained. Right. Your employees, you don't care, which is really a more of a societal thing. And I was thinking that at the other side of the pandemic, one of the things that we'll have, we'll have a new deal kind of thing for the healthcare system that mm. will see that the healthcare system is an important thing, that staffing of the healthcare system is important, that nurses and all the healthcare workers at the lower level will get some of the, not just even financial benefits and um, time off and things like that, but also the recognition and praise they need. Yeah. That isn't happening. And how would, how would that work? That's an intriguing idea, a new deal for the healthcare system. Because, yeah, I mean, we've been, I started off talking about nurses, but of course, you know, a, a lot of responsibility for maintaining the sort of uh, the sanitation of hospitals and maintaining an environment in which patients can recover falls on uh, maintenance workers, sanitary workers, cleaners and, and the like, right? Right, who of course get you know uh, are as ex as more exposed than than uh, the general population often to this virus and and not really compensated for it. So what what would have to happen to enact some kind of uh, healthcare worker New Deal? Like what would be the role of of government, for example? I, I, I like like the real New Deal. Mm -hmm. From the 1940s, it has to be a federal government thing, in which there's a focus on that this pandemic um, needs to make us 
change the healthcare system. And I don't see that happening. It's almost like, okay, it's gone. Let's just continue. Yeah. Yes, it's gone to the level that it's now, it's going to be like a seasonal um, um, flu or any other respiratory disease because we're not having um, cases as high and they're not as um, severe, which is good. So we, we, I think we have gone to a place where it's going to become an endemic disease um, that is seasonal to some extent. And that doesn't mean there won't be any mortality, but it will not, it will not get to the epidemic state um, again um, in the near future. But it was devastating to the, econ- to the, to the population, to the economy. It, one million people died of disease and we're going to continue as if you know everything is back to normal um which it is which we shouldn't but it looks like that's what's going to happen yeah i mean it is it is wild it's interesting to me also how how important staffing seems to be in these conditions i mean a, a persistent theme in demonstrations uh, by nurses, for example, is staffing. They want more staff, right? They want more uh, nurses. They want more workers to patients. And sort of secondary is payment because payment for nurses is not so it's not necessarily great in all states, but it's not that bad. And uh, the story notes that um, the the medical industry is saying, oh, no, we have a we have a shortage of nurses. The nation says, no, the number of people who are passing nursing licensing exams has increased steadily since 2002. So it's not necessarily that you don't have enough people trained in this job. It's that you don't have enough people who want to work at it. And I wonder, you know, if if some of this, these conditions could be changed, if change is not going to be sort of imposed uh, by by the government, if, you know, unionizing some of these workplaces is a step toward it. I I, I don't know, because I do believe most nurses are allowed to unionize um, in most places, I think the problem is really um, the the the, uh, uh, the care you give your 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 employees. Mm-hmm. That's a general problem. But in the healthcare system, COVID has kind of brought it to the light. Um, yes, people are graduating from nursing school, but they're choosing not to go into patient care, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of people retired during the pandemic are the people that have gotten to the place where they know their job, they're good at it. Um, but because of the way they were treated and because uh, employ- employers didn't care about their own health, mm-hmm. they to leave. And so we have to talk about the condition and, like you said, not the payment, but how you treat people that, that work within um, a healthcare system that you expect them to care for others. Mm-hmm. And I think that if that changes, more people will actually go back to patient care because a lot of people went into nursing because they wanted to care for people, mm-hmm. right? So now there's so many things you can do as a nurse that you won't see a patient, right? Yeah. The choice people are making and it's to give them that option. But part of this new deal will also in, include training younger nurses and also, um, you know, but that also should be that they will get treated better when they work with patient care. We still don't have enough nurses. Even if all the people that came out out of the other jobs they're doing, which they're not going to, um, every industry needs nurses from, you know, there's so many places they can do work. We still do need the training of more nurses, and that's where the New Deal comes in, training more young people to be nurses and also the working conditions they have to work under. Yeah, and then promising them if, if, you know, you, you... 
your job is going to be normal. But if something happens like another pandemic, you're not going to be treated like absolute garbage. Dr. Obasanjo, while you're here, I wanted to ask you about the state of COVID right now, because across the country, cases were up 52 percent in the most recent two week average. Cases requiring ICU care were up 11 percent. Deaths were up three percent. And I wonder if you think we we should be doing anything differently right now to to manage what is obviously a a surge from the Omicron subvariant. And I also wonder if you are seeing the an impact anywhere of of this uh, delayed funding from uh, government as Congress still cannot come to an agreement on more funding for COVID treatment and testing? I think the problem is not um, whether what we need more is that are we um, able to pay the social and economic and political costs? And mm-hmm. I think we're not. And, I, and so right now, like I said, we're going to get to an endemic state in which um, I, right now it's looking like we're going to have two high seasons, one in the winter and one in the spring or, or, or maybe even another one in the fall. But this is going to play out in which we're going to have high seasons that then they will go down and then, and, but I think we're going to, what society has decided is we're going to live with it. Yeah. Mostly because the mortality is not as high, again, because most people are immune now to some extent. And we, there is cross-immunity with sub-variants. The, sub, the, the changing um, of the virus is not as fast as to cause us to lose immunity. So that's good. Um, and as we get boosted, that helps. So, so basically, I, I'm not sure I can advocate for more because I just don't see that there's a will to do anything, not only from government, but even ordinary people. Yeah. yeah I mean, and so we're where we are now. Um, and the idea is, I, I think we just need to study this more uh, and kind of decide you know, what we'll live with. I, I also think that the vaccination is still important because some of this mortality could still be reduced. Um, and just kind of watching it and making sure that what is needed to to kind of reduce the the death um, and and actually also the incidence is there. But I just think that people are just kind of want to move on, which humanity has done since we've always lived with um, diseases and epidemics. So I, I think we have to kind of realize where social and political and economic people are and kind of the health system has to kind of then judge where to go. Yeah. But that's where we are. Yeah. And take the take the lessons we have learned and build a more robust health system that will benefit all of us, whether or not we see another pandemic in our lifetimes. That was Dr. Yabo Obasanjo of uh, College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. Thank you so much, Dr. Obasanjo. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. John, do you want to hear my favorite story of the day in 30 seconds? Love to. Baby born at Metallica concert. <laughs> this is in Brazil. This poor woman, she bought, they, they bought their tickets nearly three years ago to this concert. I'm guessing it was delayed because of the pandemic. COVID, and right. she was like, who cares if I'm 39 weeks pregnant? I want to go. It'll oh be fine. I'm going to sit down the whole time. I'm not going to exert myself. But no. And apparently the child, listen, I don't care if they're exaggerating this. Apparently the child was actually born during Enter Sandman. Which is, uh, you know, about the best way you can hope to come into this world. So we get to leave on on a high note. That's all we have time for for today. I want to thank all of our guests and our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.